Thank you for listening to the One City Church Podcast. We hope this resource inspires you and equips you to walk in everything that God has for you. As we kind of spoke a little bit last week, I believe the Lord is really uh, highlighting worship uh, in this season. Uh, if there's a key to what the Lord is doing in this season, and, and I believe it's a new era in how the Lord has been bringing us into this place of seeing and realizing His promises, um, and worship plays a key and vital role to that. And I believe in sowing into, by teaching worship, uh, we will begin to see that elevate um, as we move forward. You know, we talked about last week, if you teach on salvation, you see salvation. If you teach on healing, you see healing. And so teaching on worship, I believe, will elevate our worship. Um, And I'm just excited to see what the Lord will do. So uh, as we were preparing yesterday for this message, uh, the Lord really dropped in my spirit two main thoughts. The first was, uh, we need to prepare to worship the Lord rightly. And uh, we know that there's a right and a wrong way to worship based off of what we see in Scripture. And Steve's going to dive into that in here in just a second. But leading to this place of, we need to prepare to see the Lord rightly. And how you see and how you view the Lord is vital to how it transforms you. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, We use that term a lot. What you behold is what you become. And so how you behold the Lord, how you see him, how you worship him is very important. So if you would give us just a few minutes um, this morning as we dissect these two main thoughts, and I believe uh, it'll sow into what the Lord wants to do, not only corporately, but individually in your life. So Steve's just going to dive in. So I'll try to move quickly because I'm hungry and you probably are too. <laughs> Amen. All right, there we go. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to have another opportunity, even though it's not really my jam, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll walk through that. So yeah, David calls me or texts me yesterday. He tries to call me first and I didn't answer the call because I was in some, I was in Walmart and he texts me. He says, so uh, we're on again for tomorrow. And so I sent him back a text message that just said, I have COVID. <laughs> and, and just let it lie. Like I didn't say anything else. <laughs> so like, like 30 seconds later, I get a phone call. Like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, so yeah, there you go. All right. So, uh, so yeah. So like David said, you know, he text, we talked a little bit and then he texted me a little while later and said that, uh, that God had, had laid on his heart to uh, to talk about worshiping the Lord rightly and seeing the Lord rightly. And so we're kind of going to split that. So I'm going to talk about worshiping the Lord rightly. So the Bible provides some, you know, clear examples of wrong and right worship, right? And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about those. So uh, some of the examples of good and bad, one of the earliest examples of right and wrong worship was Cain and Abel. So in Genesis chapter four, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it didn't meet God's requirement. So his worship was rejected because it didn't meet God's requirement. And the Bible doesn't talk a a whole lot uh, about why specifically God rejected the sacrifice. There's some, some varying things there, but you know, in, in my opinion, part of that reason, it was because of Cain's attitude. You know, the Bible talks about he was angry. So, uh, so, you know, your attitude when you worship is critical. Your attitude when you walk into, to, to worship, uh, not just here, but when you go about your, your daily business, you know, attitude is critical, right? Um, 
So we see a second example later uh, after Moses and Aaron established the temple, uh, that became the means in the Old Testament of how worship was, was done. And, uh, and worship was done through sacrifice in the Old Testament, through animal sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered a sacrifice to God that God found unacceptable. The Bible calls it strange fire. And actually, in that case, when they offered the, the strange fire, the Bible says that God uh, sent forth fire and it consumed them. So they actually died because they offered worship that wasn't adequate, didn't meet God's requirement. So, you know, that's uh, obviously, you know, we're not, we don't live under the Old Testament law. And thankfully so, right? Because Lord knows I have, I have come into this place even and not been, you know, all there, right? You have those, those days where you're just like, eh right? And so thank God when I walk in here, God doesn't go, okay, you want to come in here like that? Peace out, right? <laughs> thank God that we don't live under that, uh, that Old Testament worship anymore, but worship is still critical in the New Testament. Um, you know, Jesus provided us with his sacrifice, an act, uh, a means to access God without the animal sacrifice and without the mediator, without the intermediary between us and God. So we have direct access to God. And because of this, we're called to, we're still called to worship God rightly. So Jesus said before his crucifixion, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the father seeks. So the sacrifice of the cross, like I said, it made it so that we, we have a right to go before God and worship. We don't have to go to a priest anymore. We don't have to ask forgiveness through an intermediary. We don't have to, to bring an animal to an altar to sacrifice, but God gave us access. Jesus gave us access to, to the throne of God so that we can come before him boldly and make our petitions known. And so that's, that to me is an exciting thing, right? We can, we can have access to God. That's such, a, such an incredible thing when you think about it. Um, so, so what does that mean? So instead, you know, we don't have these priests anymore that we have as an intermediary. Instead, God has made us the priest, each of us. And I don't mean like me and David and Pastor Feldshaw and those. Each of us has been made a priest. We are each now the carriers of God's presence. Amen. So if God has called each of us to be a priest, what does a priest do? So that's what I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about is what do you do as a priest in the New Testament? If we're all called to be priests, so, uh, so in the Old Testament, we'll look at the Old Testament some as, a, as, sort, of a, um, as sort of a driver for, to show us what the New Testament priest looks like, right? So priests worship God and they help other people worship God. That's the, the basic breakdown, right? And so in the Old Testament, God appointed the Levites to take care of the tabernacle and lead people in worship through sacrifice. So even though our worship doesn't require an animal sacrifice, as, as New Testament priests, we see similarities to the way that worship was conducted in the Old Testament. So we'll talk about a few things. Priests steward meeting places. So in the Old Testament, God commanded Moses to set the tabernacle up. So he builds this tabernacle as a place where his people uh, and God can meet to worship. And in this tabernacle, he, uh, he has priests set up this, uh, this outer area where they bring sacrifices in and the priests make sacrifices to God. But that's basically where the people stop at, right? They don't get to go into the Holy of Holies and actually experience the manifest presence of God. It's only the priests that go into the Holy of Holies. So the, the Levites are the only people who are entrusted to do that. 
And they're the only ones who get to experience that manifest presence. So, you know, nowadays, even though we do have this church building, we don't have the tabernacle of old anymore, right? But we still do have a place to meet with God. But Jesus made it possible for us to establish a meeting place anywhere. So as a priest, I don't have to do that. I don't have to establish my meeting place with God just in this building. I can establish a meeting place at my house. I can establish a meeting place with God anywhere and everywhere, right? So wherever I'm at, with whomever I'm with. I can establish this place for God's presence to manifest. So Jesus made this possible for us. That's why we sing songs like throne rooms. We talk about the veil is torn and the doors flinged wide. We have this direct access now to God so we can establish this meeting place. The second point is priests steward the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant. So the ark is what contained the presence of God. That's actually what stayed in the Holy of Holies. So this presence of God would manifest around the ark. But the the priests were the only people who could carry that presence. Well, in the New Testament, we become... Uh, we become the, the modern day priests that carry the presence. So we carry the literal presence of God in us. So... Um, So 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 5 and 20 says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. So God's made us ambassadors. So God has endowed us with authority, with spiritual authority to manifest his presence wherever we go. So that's, I mean, that's a cool concept to me, right? So like, we don't have the power in ourselves. God didn't actually give us the physical power. He gave us the authority. And the way that I try to think about that is like, so if the, if I run into a police officer and I'm driving my 3000 pound vehicle down the road, right? And that police officer steps out in front of me and he puts his hand up and says, stop. He don't have no power to stop my car. Uh, You know, if I put the gas pedal down, I will run him over and keep on going. But he does have authority that's been vested in him by the state that the rest of the police officers going to come chase me down, (laughs) right? So God has given us that authority. We have the authority of God to manifest his presence, to speak things into existence, to speak healing, to speak deliverance, to speak freedom, to bring people in and, and speak salvation into people's lives. These are the things that God has empowered us. He's given us the authority to do these things as believers in the new Testament. Um, so, you know, God's called us, so, so he said he's called us to carry the ark. So he's called us to be the presence carrier. He's also called us to stand before the Lord and minister. So what does that mean? So we minister to God through our worship. So when we talk about worship, worship's not about us. It's not for me. It's not for us. It's, worship is for God right? And so, so it's so many times we get, we get caught up in this thing where we go, man, I don't really like that song. I don't really like the way they do that thing or this thing or that thing. I don't like the way the lights look. I don't like the way this, that, or the other. And it's so easy to get caught up in worship being about us and being about the things that we like and the things that we prefer, right? But that's not what God called us to do. God called us to worship him, to, to bring worship to him. And the circumstance shouldn't matter. What, what's going on around me and what, what song they're playing and what pastor's saying, that's, that stuff shouldn't matter. That stuff should fall away. If we become true worshipers and we get caught up in worship and, and the way worship should happen, then we would, you know, we would not worry as much about the things that are personal preferences and personal taste. Amen? 
So worship is primarily focused on God. One of the cool things, so some of you that, that uh, some of you went through a class that we taught on, uh, David referenced the book, How to Worship a King, and some of this stuff is directly out of that. And one of the cool uh, comments or, or things that he wrote in that book is, priests court the heart of God, politicians court the hearts of people. And which do you want to be? So that's the thing, right? It's a constant checking of your heart. Am I here to court the heart of God or am I here to court the heart of people? What is my, what is my main focus? And so, so we must court the heart of God in our churches. We've got to continue. That's why we, again, that's why we say things like we're contending for revival and we're contending for a move of God because all of the other things, all of the cool, the cool buildings and the cool technology and all that stuff. And I love that stuff, but that stuff is not the important thing. The important thing is that we court a move of God in our churches because without a move of God in our church, things are not going to change. People are not going to be saved. People are not going to be healed. They're not going to be delivered. We must focus. We must be constantly focused on courting a move of God in this place. Amen. So the last thing that we, that I want to talk about is priest bless people. So what does that mean? So blessing it, people is a part of our responsibility as modern day priests. And again, I, I just want to keep coming back to that point of I'm, when I keep saying priest, I know that's not a common thing necessarily for, for you to maybe hear uh, somebody say is that you are a priest. You have been made a priest. And so blessing people is part of our responsibility as a collective group, right? We have a responsibility to blessing, bless people. And what does that mean? Why is that important? So that's important because blessings catalyze spiritual destiny. So what is that? A catalyst. When you talk about that, what, you know, uh, I'm not a chemical engineer. I'm an electrical engineer by trade, but a catalyst when you talk about that is, um, you know, it's a thing that sets off a chemical reaction. It speeds up a chemical reaction. So it's this thing you put in and it speeds the process up. And so when you, when you talk about that, uh, you know, ultimately, so it's an ingredient that causes a change. And so one of the best uh, examples of that that I could think of is, uh, is when we look at Jacob. So Jacob, when you talk about Isaac and Jacob and Esau, Jacob was not the first son. And so in the Old Testament, he was not entitled to the birthright. He was not entitled to, the, to all the things that came with being the first son. And actually, as a matter, uh, when you read that, so in the Old Testament, names were given to people that meant specific things about people's character. So this is how people were described is by their, their name described their character. And that name actually described him as a deceiver and a supplanter. The Bible says that as he came out of the womb, he was grabbing onto the heel of Esau as he came out. And so the Bible tells us that later he actually did through deceit, obtain the blessing of Isaac. But, uh, you know, when Isaac blessed Jacob, it actually catalyzed his destiny so Isaac blesses Jacob and Jacob becomes, uh, become, later becomes Israel and he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that blessing that, that Isaac uh, blesses Jacob with is the thing that sets his in, this entire chain of events in motion, right? So his entire life leading up to this point, he's known as nothing but a deceiver and a supplanter. He's known as just the, he's the bad kid, right? He's the one that, that you go, man, no, you don't want to mess with that guy. He's a mess. He's messed up, right? But then when, Jacob, or when Isaac blesses Jacob, it catalyzes his destiny, and he becomes the father of Israel. And so that's an important thing. You know, we've got to be careful that we don't miss someone's future 
by looking at what their present state is. That we, don't, that we don't get so caught up in the mess that somebody's dealing with right now that we just miss that they could be the next person that brings 100,000 people to the Lord, but, but we just throw them, we cast them aside because right now they're, you know, they've got character issues or they've got this thing or that thing or, or, or whatever the case may be. And so as a priest, we must see people for their potential and call them by their potential, even though they're in their current state that doesn't match that potential, that future potential. Amen. Amen. So it's critical that we worship the Lord rightly, but in order to worship the Lord rightly, we also must see the Lord rightly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just like you're saying, like knowing that we are priests issues to us, the responsibility to worship the Lord rightly. Um, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. Pastor has a responsibility. Our staff has a responsibility. But it's not the title. It's your identity as a priest. Because you have a responsibility to worship the Lord rightly. And I think like what you said at the beginning. You said that priests are responsible for not only worshiping God, but leading other people in worship. You look at us as the worship leaders, but really you have the ability to lead others in worship. Some of the best worship leaders I've ever met can't carry a tune in a bucket. But they, when they worship the Lord, it catalyzes the room and stirs them to worship the Lord. So I do believe that the Lord is speaking to us in this hour to come into alignment with the process and the protocol to worship him rightly. And I want to touch just briefly on the tabernacle. We, we kind of touched on it a minute ago, but I want to just show you something real quick that in the tabernacle, I believe it shows us that the Lord is a God of process and he's a God of protocol. And we, we're going to look at this from a vantage point of a priest because say, I'm a priest, I'm a priest. All right, come on, hang on. Say, I'm a priest. I'm a priest. I'm a priest. Okay, so here we go. So when you're, when you're entering into the tabernacle area, right, you're encountering uh, several different things. You're encountering the gate, the altar, the laver, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then finally the ark. Okay, there's a lot of items there, and there's a lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of good teaching in that, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but I'm just going to walk you through all the way from the gate to the ark real quick. You ready? Here we go. When you go inside the gate, you are making a conscious decision to transition from a place outside to a place inside, okay? You're transitioning into a place of worship. If you're a worshiper in the Old Testament, when you're coming up to the altar, you never come empty-handed. You are there for an intention to give of worship, to give something to the Lord and sacrifice. The whole thing is designed to gear that in you to say, I have to give the Lord this. It's a place of death. It's a place of sacrifice, but it's a place of worship. And we know that in the New Testament, Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and we don't have to offer up animals like Steve was talking about. But instead, we are the living sacrifices. So we never come empty-handed. We always bring something of value, something of worth. And in the New Testament, that's us. We bring ourselves as a living sacrifice. So we got inside the gate. We passed by the altar. And a lot of people kind of stop there. They say, I know how to give sacrifice to the Lord. I know how to, I know what salvation happened and atone for my sin. And that's good. That's the altar, right? Moving past that, we see the laver. And I'm not going to spend too much time on here, but this laver is a representation of a washing and even the washing of the word. There's a lot of different elements here in the laver where you, as you're peering over and you're washing, it's a reflective surface. And the, and the Bible is often referred to in itself as a mirror, and it's a washing of the word, 
in, in preparation to enter into the inner court. So if you pass through the inner court, you're greeted with the table, and this is called the table of showbread. That's a funny word because literally it means the bread of face. It means face-to-face communion, not with each other, but with God. This is a place that only the priests had access to, and guess what? You're a priest. Say, I'm a priest. So you have access to this place. Remember, a lot of people, they stop at the altar. They might go further into the labor, but have you been inside the inner court? I know this house has been, but you're sitting at the table of a face-to-face communion with the Lord. And in that place, it's the only light you see is from this lampstand. This lampstand or the menorah, what what it represents is is the presence and the spirit of God as we see in Revelation. You pull that thread all the way from Exodus and talking about the temple all the way to Revelation. Bible talks about that lampstand representing the spirit and the presence of God. And I'm not gonna stay there, but when you're in that place of intimacy with the Lord, the only thing illuminating your walk with the Lord is the presence and the spirit of God. Then in that place, you also see the altar of incense representing, we know in Revelation, the prayers of the saints. And that prayer, that, that, that incense just permeates the whole room. And it's all you can smell. It's all you can see. Among the light, you see the, the haze of the incense. And in the, in the Revelation, you see where those bowls were tipped over. And what happens is that that those prayers spill out onto the earth and that prayer comes manifest the will of God. And so in this place of intimacy, we have this face-to-face communion with the Lord, only seeing what it's illuminated by the light of his presence and the incense of prayer that when it spills over, activates the will of God on the earth. So this is the inner court. This is the place of God in worship when he's drawing us into this place. And if you're in the Old Testament, you stop there because there's a veil and only the high priests are allowed to go beyond that into the manifest presence, the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant. So I want to read something for you real quick because I do believe that We've, we've been learning about how to worship the Lord rightly, and it's leading us to this place of seeing the Lord rightly. And what I'm, what I'm seeing is in 2 Corinthians, we talk about this often where we say, you become what you behold. Uh, you become like what you worship. So I'm going to read this. Uh, and speaking of the veil, uh, Paul says it like this. He says, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. So this veil not only represented a physical barrier, but it represented an emotional and mental and and spiritual barrier between God and the people. And remember, God didn't want the veil. The people wanted the veil. He said, Moses, put something in front of your face. We can't stand the radiance of that glory. So he said, boom, got it. You got a veil now. And it says this in verse 14. It says, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even at this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Can you say that? The veil is taken away. Now the spirit of the Lord. Uh, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all say we all. We all. 
I mean, you can probably make that a text, and we all, we, anyways, with unveiled faces, beholding, <laughs> I'm going to read that again, sorry, I'm goofy. All right, but we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So I want to encourage you in this thought that Worshiping the Lord rightly brings us to a place where we can see the Lord rightly. And as we see the Lord rightly, it transforms us from glory to glory. This is why this is so important. When we see him, see in the tabernacle, all of this process leads us to a place of encounter. And it's important to the Lord that we encounter him and we seek his face. That's why he even makes that table there that we can have communion with him. Even in the midst of the veil, there was a table where people, where the priest could have communion with him. And it's important to God that we see him rightly because throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, God is concerned and he is very serious about misrepresentation. That's why the third commandment is do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. And that means, of course, to curse God or to curse using his name, but it also means to misrepresent him by giving a prophetic word or something like that in the Old Testament that has his name attached to an empty promise. So it's, do not use his name empty. Do not make, do not say something with his name attached that won't come to pass because he's really concerned about misrepresentation. So it's really important to him that you see him correctly. Of course, worship leads us to that place of encounter to see him correctly because as we just mentioned, the veil has been lifted off of us. And we become what we behold. So as we stare at him in worship and as we gaze upon him, it transforms us from glory to glory. So what's this mirror that Paul is talking about? Well, it's the word. It's the word of God. The primary method for us learning about and encountering the character and nature of God is through his word. Uh, I often think about the, the Word of God as being a roadmap to my experience with Him. Because I can step into worship and say, I feel this way about God. I feel this way about God. But feelings change. And I don't want to knock feelings because I'm a very emotional person. But feelings can change. They ebb and flow with circumstance. And if someone said something to you wrong or this happened, your, your whole trajectory can change based off of feeling. But knowing is something different. If I know that I can experience God in a certain way because it's written down in here, then that becomes a roadmap for my experience because just as we talked about last week, the goal of worship is not you to have a great emotional experience. The goal of worship is for you to encounter him. He is the goal of worship. Worship is very directional. From you to God, that's it. There are byproducts of worship, healing, anointing, supernatural, all this kind of stuff. But make no mistake, the goal of worship is him. So I know because of what I read in here, there's a roadmap to his presence. And, and when I read something, I can encounter it. Uh, when I read in the book of Psalms that as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after you, that I can encounter him in a place of intimacy because he satisfies something inside of me that I never knew existed. Because his intimacy is unparalleled because I read about people who've encountered it in here. I can see that when Paul, uh, when John is standing before the Lord and he says his eyes are like flames of fire and his voice is like rushing water, that he has a majesty that is unparalleled. And I can experience that because someone experienced it in here. And it can lead me to that place. 
And the, one of the things that's important is that whenever you have, whenever you have this roadmap, when something comes to violate your view of who God is, you have a record to stand on. Say, that doesn't line up with the record. The more I know about this, the more I see him. And the more I see him, the more I worship him. The more I worship him, the more I'm transformed into his image. And the more I see him, the more I want to learn about him. It's this cycle that never ends, and it's beautiful. You go from glory to glory. And as I read through Scripture and I encounter Holy Spirit, um, it brings me to a place where I can properly see the depths of who he is. Uh, You can only properly value something if you can properly see it. Oftentimes, I I meet people and they don't properly value Jesus in their life because they have a narrow view of who Jesus is. But when you read things like Mary Magdalene breaking open an alabaster box on his feet and you see him the way that Mary saw him, you realize that the alabaster box wasn't enough. When you see him the way that Paul sees him, you realize when you're caught up with him and he says that I can't even say the words because they'd be unlawful for me to speak, words cannot describe when you're in that place with him. And when you see things like John the Baptist who, who, lays, uh, who, who lays there and, and he's, he's encountering all these people and, and he's, he's saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away, he turns all of their attention away from himself onto him and you say... God, get all the glory because I see you the way that John sees you. You deserve all the glory and all the attention. And when you see him the way that Peter saw him, you realize that obedience unto death was appropriate. And so the clearer you see him, the more you can properly value him. But here's here's the danger in this. As, and of course, you know, just as having a right view of him, we behold him as in a mirror, becoming like him, being transformed from glory to glory. As you see him rightly, you're transformed from glory to glory. Having a wrong view of him will distort the way you worship and it will ultimately distort your character and your nature. Let me give you a few examples. Maybe uh, we've come to look at him through the lens of our circumstance. So I was talking a minute ago. As I read this, I know that I have a record of who he is, so my circumstance is kind of irrelevant. So when I sing about he's my provider, even though I might be in the midst of a financial crisis, I know I have a record that he is provider. But if I view him as a lens, uh, through the lens of my circumstance, I may say those words and they may sting me. And so I'm just focused on the fact that you said you were going to be a provider, but you're not. And you start to view him incorrectly. Maybe you have an authority figure in your life, or you did growing up, maybe a father figure or whatever, who abused you. So when we sing things like, you're a good, good father, you go, nope, not through my lens. If you're a father, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Now, I'm fortunate to have a good father. I've met your dad. He's a really nice guy too as well. But I've met people before who they have no concept of father. And when you say father, what's happening? They're viewing him wrongly. Or maybe you've been taught incorrectly. God is an angry God and he's holding you to this impossible standard. And the moment you mess up is the moment that he'll replace you with someone else who's going to do a better job than you. And you better conform or you're going to get lost. And when we sing things like the reckless love of God who chases me down even when I'm in the pit, you go, I've never met that God. So, How we view him is very important to how we encounter him. And and it really will affect the depth at which you trust him 
as you look upon him. Because let me give you a secret. In that table, in the tabernacle, it says face to face. In order to do that, there's got to be two faces. When you gaze upon him, it's not just you who's looking at him. He's looking back at you, and that's why you're being transformed from glory to glory. But if you view him through the wrong lens, and you go to look upon him, and you see him looking back at you, it's going to affect the depth at which you trust him, because you're looking at him through the lens of my circumstance, authority figure who abused me, wrong teaching, bad mindset. Malachi 1.7 uh, talks about a pollution of offering to the Lord, a, pollution, a polluted offering, a polluted worship time. And it says this, the table of the Lord is despised in this time. And I'm going to borrow that word because that table represents that table of intimacy. And there are times when we see the Lord incorrectly that that place of intimacy is despised by us because we don't want to see what we've been seeing. But I want to encourage you with something today, because I believe this is where the Lord really brought us in, in prayer yesterday and then in preparation for this morning. Steve hit the nail on the head earlier when he said, when priests stand up to bless the people, it catalyzes something in them. There's a destiny that's catalyzed in you when a priest gets up and blesses you. Now, I know for the sake of argument, you guys are all priests, but sometimes you need a brother or sister to come alongside of you and pray over you and release a blessing into you, like a prophetic word or just agreement in prayer. So this morning, what I really felt like the Lord, when he said that, I was like, that's it. That's what, that's what the Lord wants us to do, because he brought me to this place of, there are some here among us this morning who are either two, one or two things. Either one, you have stood in a place where you were seeing the Lord incorrectly because of a past experience, because of a hurt, because of, of maybe wrong teaching a wrong mindset, and you need to realign with who the God of Scripture really is. And as you enter into intimacy with Him, it will awaken something inside of you. You'll be transformed from glory to glory. And I believe we're going to have some prayer partners that'll come up, and they'll pray with you to catalyze that part in you. And there's others here this morning that you've, you've seen the Lord rightly, uh, you've worshiped the Lord rightly, but there's just a part of you that needs to be catalyzed into to the next phase of your life. And that's one of, our, uh, one of our duties as priests is to stand with you and say, I catalyze you by blessing into the next phase of your life, into whatever the Lord has for you beyond this moment. Just like with Jacob, he went from being a, a thief and, and, a, and a deceiver to being a father of nation. So here's what we're going to do this morning. And this is sort of um, my favorite part about this, this teaching is that I do believe that the Lord is sowing into this time that we're in with a heart to bring us deeper in worship, with a heart to bring us higher in worship. When we get together in worship, there's just something on it. And it's more than it was before. And so I believe in this place of worship, when we establish his throne in this room, then these two things we can take care of today. If you approach the Lord and you say, I have a problem with intimacy with him because I see him the wrong way, we can take care of that today. We can pray with you, agree with you, and we can launch you into a new place in the Lord. If you say, well, I don't have a problem with that, but there is something that the Lord is drawing and, near and leading me into, and I need someone to stand with me and agree with me to launch me into that. We want to stand and we want to pray with you in that. Because I believe as we sow into this time of worship, 
not only today, but over the next few weeks, you heard the announcement earlier that we're going to take May and on Wednesday nights, we're going to have worship nights. I encourage you to be there because I believe as we sow into this time of worship, we're establishing the throne of God over our, our church, over our city and over our region. So would you stand with me? You guys have been patient. You guys have been real kind and I thank you for allowing us this opportunity to sow into you these two main thoughts, how to worship the Lord rightly, how to see him rightly. And I want to ask my prayer partners, um, I think my elders and then the pastoral staff, we, we might need them too as well, to come forward and you guys are going to line up. And we want to do this today. I'm going to just pronounce a blessing over you, but I, I want to encourage you to come down and, and talk with these elders. I'm going to do this this morning. Okay, Father, I bless everyone under the sound of my voice with a heart for obedience to worship you rightly and with a heart and a desire of intimacy to see you rightly. Draw us deeper into what you have for us so that we may be transformed from glory to glory. Thank you for listening to the One City Church podcast. For more information about our church, visit onecity.church.